From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, we remember Judge Wiley Daniel, the first Black federal judge appointed in Colorado. But that was just the beginning. By any account, he was a trailblazer. What we would often say is the first but not the last. We got to make sure others can follow that path, be inspired by his leadership, and give back in the way that Wiley Daniel would. How a new portrait captures his pioneering legal legacy and commitment to mentorship. And later, the head of Colorado's Department of Corrections is stepping down after years of pushing for new ways to rethink incarceration. It's worth it to be on the journey and in some ways get over our own denial that we've got this whole prison thing figured out. We don't. It's okay to question what we've been doing. Hi, I'm CPR's President Stuart Vanderwilt. The news and music services you rely on continue to grow because of your generosity. Your membership matters. Thank you for your continued support of Colorado Public Radio. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Judge Wiley Y. Daniel was the first African-American judge appointed to the federal bench in Colorado nearly 30 years ago. His colleagues say he paved the way for the more diverse state judiciary that Colorado enjoys today. He died unexpectedly in May of 2019 at the age of 72. His colleagues noted that just hours before his death, he'd been on a conference call, meeting and strategizing to the very end, a testament to his longstanding commitment to mentoring and serving the Colorado legal community and the community overall. Now, all who strolled the halls of the Alfred A. Arage Federal Courthouse in downtown Denver will know of Judge Daniel and his mark on Colorado history. A portrait of the judge was recently unveiled at a private ceremony at the courthouse, The event was standing room only and attended by a who's who of Colorado's legal community, including Phil Weiser, Colorado's current and recently reelected attorney general. So what did you think of the portrait? It captures Wiley Daniel. Of course, the smile jumps out. He was one of the warmest, welcoming people. He didn't know a stranger. He loved people. He cared about people. And that comes through this portrait. Yeah, it almost has a 3D quality like he's coming out of the portrait. It is true. The portrait feels like his spirit is captured and you get a sense of him. And for all of us who knew him, you never forgot him. He was someone who, again, built relationships. He was deeply committed to supporting people, to civil rights, to diversity, and he cared so much about our community. Speaking of the community, I had an opportunity to attend the Sam Carey Bar Association's tribute to Judge Daniel, and that was sort of the sense that he was a type of person that gave back, mentored regardless of age or years in practice. What can you say about that? We need mentors like Wiley Daniel. His commitment to giving back and always being there was extraordinary. I was dean of the University of Colorado Law School. He would never turn down the chance to mentor students. He loved teaching because he cared so much about mentoring people, particularly people of color coming from diverse backgrounds who may not have had mentors in their life. We need more people like him. His memory will live on as a blessing, inspiring others to be like Wiley Daniel. Can you just speak briefly about the historic significance of Judge Daniel's tenure? 
Judge Daniels, the first African-American judge we had on the federal bench here in Colorado. He was the first African-American to lead the Colorado Bar Association. By any account, he was a trailblazer. What we would often say is the first but not the last. We got to make sure others can follow that path, be inspired by his leadership, and give back in the way that Wiley Daniel would. And it seems that as people walk through this courthouse, they will see that image and his, his significance will forever be sealed in this courthouse. Judge Wiley Daniel belongs to the ages now. The portrait of him captures his goodness, his graciousness, his cheer and his concern for others. All of us, when we need that reminder, can come here and get it. I had the opportunity to attend the portrait unveiling, and I must say those who attended seemed genuinely impressed as the drape was removed, revealing the portrait of Judge Daniel bearing his signature smile. As I mentioned in my view, the portrait almost seems as though Judge Daniels reaching out from it, fitting considering his longstanding reputation for giving back to and mentoring those of all ages in Colorado's legal community. Judge Daniels' daughter, Jennifer Daniel Collins, told me seeing her dad's image as painted by artist Monique Krein was emotional and inspiring. It's such an honor. I feel so grateful. The amazing thing about Monique, she captured my dad's warmth. He was a very warm person, even though he was a federal judge. He was very humble, he was very down to earth, he was very warm, he had a great sense of humor. So I think she really captured his spirit. And that's what's so amazing to me, that you know people can walk down the hall and, and see his portrait and say, wow, he has such a wonderful smile, he looks so warm and, and inviting and friendly, and that's exactly who he was. My dad, he grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and I think probably he would say, you know, from maybe middle class background, Louisville, Kentucky, he was an only child, and so he received a lot of love as a child. He received a lot of love, attention, caring. He was taught from an early age that education was so important. Both of his parents were educators, and he just was loved on. And so because he received all that nurturing and love and attention from his family, he really just passed that on to everybody that he met. I don't think my dad had a stranger that he ever met. He had friends everywhere. He really took to mentoring law students here in Colorado. He was an adjunct professor at both the University of Denver School of Law as well as the University of Colorado Law School. So he just touched so many people's lives. Um, he really was, a lot of people have spoken to him about being a giant in the legal community. Um, but you know, for me, he was just my dad, right? Um, but he was also a mentor to me because I, you know, I'm a lawyer. I started my legal practice here in Denver, Colorado, and I turned to my dad for, I, I had many questions as a young lawyer and I would often turn to my dad for help. So he, he helped me in many ways too. Last question, and this is something only you all can speak to. What do you want to say about him as a dad? I mean, obviously he's a lawyer, giant in the legal community, groundbreaking uh, judge, but what was he like as a father? He was always there. So I'm the oldest of three girls. My dad was just always there for us. You know, whatever I need him as a kid, he was a litigation, he was a travel attorney when I was younger, and so he traveled a lot for work, but I don't recall him, he, he was always there. You know, whether I had a soccer game, whether I was, you know, acting in a school musical, he was always there. So I never felt like he missed out on anything. 
And as I said, I became a lawyer because of my dad's encouragement. That's the only reason I became a lawyer. I had no interest in being a lawyer when I was a kid. It was only when I was in my 20s that my dad encouraged me to go to law school. Um, but he was, he was always there for me, you know, whatever I needed. The last memory I have of my dad, right before he passed away, I was moving. And so I called my parents and I said, I could really use some help. I have to clean up my garage. And, you know, and my dad immediately was like, we'll be there. And so that's just the person he was. Whatever I asked for, whatever I needed, he was always there. That was Judge Wiley Daniels' daughter, Jennifer Daniel Collins, who, as you just heard, has followed in dad's footsteps, now working as a lawyer in Colorado herself. Just before the portrait was revealed earlier this month, the portrait artist, Monique Crine, wiped away tears during her remarks, noting how she's grown so close to Judge Daniels' wife, Ida, and three daughters, Jennifer, Stephanie, and Nicole, during the process of creating the portrait. She said in many ways, getting to know them felt like she knew Judge Daniel, although they'd never actually met. Here again is the judge's daughter, Jennifer. We started the process two years ago with the artist, Monique Krein, and it was a journey because at the time she was pregnant and she also it was also during the pandemic. So we spent a lot of time with her. We'd go to her studio and we'd see each step. She'd invite us to come over. We would go have lunch with her. We would just, she became our friend, essentially, is what happened. But to watch my dad come to life on the portrait was amazing. It was such an incredible experience. And it just, um, you know, losing a parent is hard. Um, I think for anyone who's lost a parent, it, it's the grief. Um, it's just very difficult being able to work through that and I think seeing my dad come to life on the portrait helped with some of that grief so it was an amazing process I'm very grateful so very grateful the artist Monique Krein of Denver said a lot of thought was put into whether she was the right person to create the portrait and from what we just heard and the reaction I witnessed at the ceremony it seems so Again, Judge Wiley Y. Daniel was the first African-American judge to be appointed to the federal bench in Colorado. He was also a longtime member of the Sam Carey Bar Association. Judge Daniel's commissioned painting was recently unveiled and is now displayed on the second floor of the Alfred A. Arage Federal Courthouse on 19th Street in downtown Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. She thinks her ability to Google is going to figure out some big global conspiracy. So many issues have wedged families apart the last few years. Personal, political, a global pandemic. I haven't wanted to ask if you were going to get vaccinated because I couldn't live with the terror that brings in me. How one mother and daughter unwedged the issues that divided them. Colorado Public Radio presents The Wedge, everywhere you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The man responsible for Colorado prisons is stepping down. Dean Williams has overseen the state's Department of Corrections for nearly four years. In that time, he's worked to reform the system, lowering the state's recidivism rate, reduce the prison population, and replace punishment with rehabilitation. In April of 2021, Williams read a monologue by Daniel Gilry, who spent more than a decade in prison. The reading was part of the Boulder-based Modus Theater's Just Us project, featuring stories by formerly incarcerated people. Daniel, I find it an honor to read your story. And with that, I'll be reading Daniel Guillory's monologue entitled Truth, 
not facts. The last time I went to jail, I'd been in there for about 18 months while I was fighting my case. I called my mom. Hey, mama, you guys want to come bond me out? She said, well, let me talk to your sisters, see if we can get up the money. And she talked to my sisters and they said, nope, no mom. He's up to the same thing. He's going to get out and go right back to the drugs. So we ain't in. But my mama said, well, I'm coming to get you. She went out and got alone and came and got me. I was strong in the word. and I meant it when I said I was done with crack. After my mom bailed me out, I went to pick up my car that had been impounded while I was in jail. Right before they arrested me, they searched my car, tore it up. I mean, tore it up. I had a nice Cadillac and they pulled everything out of it. They could, but they hadn't found no dope in the car. I was finally arrested for what they found in my house. I drove my car home and I was slowly putting the insides of it back together when I found a pipe under the front seat with a big old rock right next to it. And I'm thinking, did they set me up? I mean, they had searched my car up and down, even looked at my spare tire, and the dope was right there under the seat, just, just clear as day. I picked up that rock and that pipe, and I put it in my pocket. I said, nope, I ain't going to do it. But... I didn't throw it away. I knew I should have thrown it, but I didn't throw it. And later on that day, I broke it up and hit that thing. And boy, whoo, Scotty beamed me up. Woo! As soon as I got beamed up, uh, here comes my mom. I mean, as soon as I took the hit, not 20 seconds later, she came home and saw me. I saw the tears in her big old brown eyes, and I said, Mom, I bet if you had known this, you'd left my ass in there. She looked at me with tears in her eyes, and she said, No, baby, I still would have come and got you. Sometimes when I tell this story, it makes me weep. Just recalling those words. No, baby, I still would have come and got you. Oh, my God. I mean, you could have kicked me or cussed me out. But that kind of blatant love makes you butt naked, raw, and vulnerable. There's no defense. It makes you defenseless. Anything else I could have handled. Come on, bring it on. You're a liar, a failure, an addict, worthless, a criminal. That's all you got? Yeah, I could stand up to that. But love and grace will lay you out, butt naked. No clothes on. Oh, my God. <laughs> that was what made me think differently and the pivotal point that led me to be drug-free today. That's the thing we got to convey to society. It's when a person is broken, messed up, and deserves love the least, that is when they need it most. And that grace is the thing that will give people the 360 right there. The key is helping people remember their importance, understand their magnificence, 
and then invest in helping them reach their potential instead of punishing them. But the criminal justice system takes all of our shortcomings and faults and it magnifies them. That's all they look at. They take the smallest part of us and make the biggest part of our existence when all this good stuff is just sitting right there, just waiting. It's dormant. It's waiting to grow, but it's not put in the right environment. And then instead, they send us down a dark tunnel into a place of violence at every intersection. Gladiator school where you learn how to place magazines uh, around your belly in case someone tries to stick you. You learn to always step out of your pants if you sit on the toilet in case you're attacked. And when you act out in that violence, they send you further down into the hole where there are no people, just an overflowing toilet, rats, and isolation. If you drop an oak tree into a concrete world that's still alive in there and vibrant, but it's not growing, it's just dormant. But if you take it from there and drop it in a, in a decent place where there's enough sun, earth, nutrients, you don't even have to plant it. You just put it somewhere it can possibly grow, and that thing would take off on its own. The fact is, all of us in prison are human beings who committed crimes, but that is not our truth. We are not ontologically criminal. That is not our essence. And instead of helping us return to the full truth of who we are, the criminal justice system takes away our names, gives us DOC numbers, robs us of our dignity, freedom, and happiness. And most of all, the potential to be our best selves that we could have been if someone had tried to nurture us instead of neuter us. And how can it change as long as the justice system continues to lie about what it's doing to us? They give us a piece of paper that says, the court is sentencing the defendant to incarceration for 10 years of rehabilitation and is fitted towards the sentence. Rehabilitation, my ass. There's no rehabilitation. When you send us to the Department of Corrections, you're making us more incorrect. There's not a sliver of corrections. Those of us telling our stories as part of the justice project are fairly new to this whole idea of restorative justice. But we know that telling the truth and taking responsibility for the harm we have caused is a big part of it. And we have reflected as a group in our writing process on that harm. But we are also asking the criminal justice system itself to sit in a circle with us and hear the ways we have been harmed because it itself has been criminal in the name of justice. Thank you. After reading Daniel Gilry's monologue, DOC Chief Dean Williams spoke with him about his backstory. Sometimes all you need is one person in your life to help you, whether or not it's a family member, a mom, a dad, a grandma, somebody in your life. Um, if just one person can believe in you when you can't believe in you anymore, um, sometimes that can just be enough, right? The other thing, and just quite frankly, I feel is that I don't like putting myself in your shoes. 
And um, because it's hard, um, I see the things, Daniel, every day that I don't like. And um, there's quite a number of them. And it's, um, these are real people's lives, it's your life. And um, I know it's the real deal. This isn't an exercise, these are, you know, there's 15,000 people in my custody, 16,000 people in this state, in the custody department of corrections. Closer to 20,000 if you count the halfway houses and other locations. So it's the real deal and it gets me in the gut. Daniel Gilry, who spent more than 10 years in prison, followed up with what it was like to hear Williams read his story. My goodness, his authenticity is absolutely transparent. I mean, it's I I I see right through the guy, man. There's nothing opaque, just and his spirit is is vibrant and he he just affected me in a profound way. And I am deeply, deeply honored and moved by the way he portrayed my story. Thank you very much, Dean. Dean Williams also talked about the impact of Gilry's story on his role as head of corrections. I don't have to agree with everything that the way Daniel viewed it, but if I walked through Daniel's shoes every moment, maybe I would see it the same way, exactly the precisely the same way that Daniel saw it, right? But here's the thing. Here's the most important thing. I don't have to agree with everything to try to convince everybody else that something is wrong. Something is wrong. I spent about three years in my old state running that system, trying to convince people there it doesn't have to be this way. It can be better than this. It can be more humane. Dignity can still you know, be in existence with someone's life. Yes. And other countries and other places around the world, they just got it better than us. They've just done it better. It doesn't mean people get away with highway robbery or, or um, there's not a consequence for your actions. There's a consequence for all of our actions. I drive home too fast tonight, something happens, I crash into somebody. I'm not going to get a total wash out of that, right? But here's the thing. It's not only the level of incarceration that we do in the country that's so high, it's what we've created as a result of it. So uh, I'm on a mission. (laughs) I've been on a mission since I got here. And the rest of my team is on a mission to make prisons less traumatic and just a tiny little bit more normal. We have a long way to go, oh dear God. Sometimes it seems like too much. Like sometimes I'm like, where do I, where do we begin? But these stories sort of reinforce, of course, that it's worth it, right? It's worth it to be on the journey and in some ways get over our own denial that we've got this whole prison thing figured out. We don't, and it's okay. And I tell my staff and I tell the recruits, it's okay to question what we've been doing. It's okay to say, I don't understand that anymore. Does anybody else? And that we share. There's something wrong. It can be better than this. It can be different than this. I think a a major part is the system is so bound on behavior modification, how we behave. But that's just the result of how we think. We have to renew the way a person thinks of themselves. And the thing that most likely, for me personally, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, what changed my thinking was that grace, that grace is a better teacher than punishment. 
that when my mom granted me that grace that I know I did not deserve, it put my mindset in a place where I, I didn't want to violate that kindness and that thing that she had for me that I didn't even have for myself. So it's how we think that will determine our behavior. If you think right, you'll live right. Daniel Gilry spent more than a decade behind bars in Colorado. Dean Williams leads the State Department of Corrections. He read a monologue that Gilry wrote about his crime, punishment, and journey to rehabilitation. It was part of Boulder's Modus Theater's storytelling program, Just Us, a play on the word justice. We wanted to reshare this discussion from 2021 as Williams announced he's stepping down as the head of the DOC December 2nd. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. You wait for the bus, the weekend, and you wait for your morning coffee to finish brewing. But you don't have to wait to get live news from CPR. Just come to CPR.org or listen live on the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Victor Sosa always loved plants, but it wasn't until the Denver entrepreneur saw a post online that he realized he might be able to turn his passion into a business opportunity. He didn't just make the sale. He made houseplants accessible to his community in a whole new way. His story is featured in CPR's new podcast, Kian Are We, which just wrapped up its first season. Here's co-creator and host, May Ortega. So my parents worked a ton. I would only see them for like a little bit of time. So my mom taught me to take care of the plants that she had okay. as a kid. It was more of like practical necessity. So hmm. she was like, this is how you take care of my plants. And if I find out you're not watering them, you're getting the chancla. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> so it was practical. But, you know, I'm, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. And I'm over here like taking care of the plants because like my mom's like sleeping, right? Like she got home like super late. Tired. So I'm like, all right, well, let's take care of these plants and hope I don't get the chunk or kill all of these things. Yeah. Victor Sosa started raising plants pretty early on in his life, not because he wanted to, but because he had to. Fast forward to adulthood, Victor says plants rule everything in his life. But what makes someone go from doing boring housework reluctantly to putting their whole livelihood on the line doing that very same work? There are a lot of pieces that make up this living puzzle of who we are. Some of Victor's include that he was born and raised in Denver, and he's a first-generation Mexican-American. Though he hasn't always thought of himself that way. I fully, fully like identify as like Mexican-American, right? Uh, with like that stronger emphasis on like the Mexican part, mm-hmm. which wasn't always the case. It was a little bit confusing, right? Because of course, like my parents 
I wouldn't say they're like super, super Mexican, right? But we're over here eating like like organ meat tacos and stuff like that. Yeah. But I'm also going to like school with like I was one of two brown kids in my elementary school. And then same thing in my middle school and a couple in high school. So mm. I was in like a very white environment. And so I sort of just identified that way, right? Yeah, <laughs> was, it's the culture that yeah, you're like in. That I'm in, right? Yeah. All my friends are white. Then he took a trip to Mexico City when he was on the cusp of adulthood. I felt at home, but I realized that the version that I had, even living here right, with my parents, super traditional, being of Mexican descent or pretty much any other Latin descent, I feel like when you go to the country of origin, if you're not expecting it, it catches you by surprise because like the food is different. The way they speak is different. So I just remember being there and I was like, I feel at home, but I realized that the version I had here was like the, the light version mm. versus the real, the real deal. And that gave Victor some perspective. He was the real deal too. He began to look inward with kinder eyes and he gave more credence to the Mexican part of being Mexican-American. He became less ashamed of who he wasn't and instead took pride in who he was and who he could be. And something else you should know about Victor is the fact that he's an only child and he is very much aware of the pressures that come with that. First generation kid, you're supposed to like get good grades and then you, you get a big boy job. Yeah, you, um, you make that good doing money. Doing something that you like, but the main thing is the good money. Yes, right? exactly. make so, your parents proud. You want to do better than your parents yeah. did, right? And you sort of, you feel like you owe it to them, right? Yeah. And they never tell you like, hey, you owe me anything, yeah. but the doing the opposite feels like it's like a slap in the face to your parents, right? In pursuit of meeting those unspoken expectations, Victor earned not one, but two master's degrees. Then he used them to land a job as a data analyst. And it was pretty demanding. Like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., six days a week demanding. He wasn't unhappy by any means, but this wasn't his passion. And after a few years, he was getting bored. It was one of those jobs where there was a lot of, like, hurry up and wait kind of thing. So I had a lot of, I don't want to say downtime, but a lot of time where I didn't necessarily have to be, like, paying attention. Something to know about Victor is that he's always been entrepreneurial. I've always had this thing about, like, like selling things, right? So I was at my job, and I've had, like, Several other stances, like a like a reseller of things, right? So like, yeah. for like six months, I used to only sell like coffee mugs on eBay, right? Like collectible oh, coffee mugs, wow. like little things like that, yeah. right? And apparently, this habit of hustling runs in the family. When my grandmother was younger, she used to have all these like side gigs. So like, oh, she okay. would like go like to the market and like sell a couple things, even though like. She, same thing. She didn't have to, but she just thought it was fun. Like, so you get it from someone. It's in, it's in my blood <laughs> yeah, to like be yeah. like, let's let's side sell hustles. some stuff. Right? Wow. Like side hustles are my favorite thing. You yeah, know? that's cool. <laughs> yeah, amazing. So Victor had a couple of hobbies. One of them was reselling things, and the other was going down rabbit holes into different topics. 
One such topic was plants, since he already had a bit of a history with them. He spent some of his downtime at work reading about different species, what conditions are suitable for which ones, things like that. Then, one day, these hobbies merged. I don't know if it's still around, but there used to be an app called Lego. And it's basically like a secondhand reselling app for like local stuff. And I saw someone was selling plants and I was like, that's so weird. <laughs> like this app is for couches and tchotchkes. This is not for plants. And I'm like, sure enough, it was a, a lady in Aurora that like had just posted. And I was like, that's strange, right? And I was like, who's, yeah. don't you just get your plants at Home Depot or like the garden center or yeah, something? Yeah, like we all do, right? Yeah. I was yeah. Like, What's this lady doing? And I just sort of put it in the back of my mind, but it was there, right? It was like lingering. So it lingered and lingered. He already had some knowledge on plants and he was well-versed in reselling. So eventually he decided to try it out himself. The first set of plants I posted, I very clearly remember it, it was one cactus arrangement and then okay. four potted plants. Something like super basic, very simple. simple. Starter. Um, and yeah, it was yeah. like five things and I just posted them, uh -huh. right? And sure enough, you know, someone messaged me like right away. I remember it super clearly um, about the cactus arrangement, right? Uh. Um, and I was just like so jazzed. <laughs> I remember it was $20. These like like two little cactus on this, in this like ceramic oval pot. And then to sweeten the pot, I put a little like resin garden gnome in it. I remember oh. it. I'll never forget it. And this lady was like, hey, I'm interested. Like, I think I had her like 30 bucks or something. She's like, I'll give you 20. I was like, sold. <laughs> Take like, it. Deal. At first, this was just Victor's usual side hustle, only he traded selling mugs for houseplants. But in time, it got bigger. Victor started selling plants faster, buying, selling more and more. It started to creep into his workday. And you've told me that eventually you enlisted your parents' help in terms of space. So tell me about that. <laughs> enlisted, I don't think that is really the best word. I think forcibly volunteered is maybe um, the, the better way to put it. I'm posting things like at night or like on my lunch break. Just any chance I could get, you know, I'm like taking pictures, posting them, selling these plants, making arrangements to have them get picked up. The pickup location for all these plants was my parents' house. Okay, okay. <laughs> right? So, you know, like, uh, I would just be like, hey, mom, such and such is going to come at 12 on Wednesday to pick up blank, right? So I'm storing these things in their house because I live in an apartment downtown this whole time. Yeah. I don't have the room for it. I'm, I'm storing more and more things in their house, more and more things in their house. And like, that's why I said like unwilling volunteers. So they have a three bedroom home. So she's like, just put all of it in the in the bedroom, right? The one room that really didn't have anything. It was like a little office. Right. And I was like, oh, say no more, right? So yeah. of course you give me in this particular sense, you give me an inch, I take a foot. I put those on shelves on the wall, lined the entire bedroom. I took the desk out. Took everything out. That's so what I said. Like, I took room. a foot. I, I took a foot. Yeah. Me an inch. I took a foot. The matter of meeting up with a total stranger to buy or sell something can be a little nerve-wracking, at least for me personally. 
And that's what Victor was doing, having strangers come into his parents' house to grab their plants. And you would show up, I'd be like, oh, don't don't worry. I promise you there's plants in there. Cause <laughs> this isn't a trap. Yeah, this isn't a trap. We're both just standing on my parents' driveway, you know? So I did that for, for a long time when people would come into their house. My dad's over here watching TV. My mom's, like, cooking. There were several times where my dad asked the people, like, hey, like, we're about to sit down for dinner. Do you guys want some dinner? And I'm oh just my like, God. <laughs> trying to run a business here. <laughs> out of your house. Get out. This method of posting online continued for a couple of years. But something to keep in mind is that throughout this time, Victor was very aware that he was a brown man selling to a clientele of mostly white people, mostly white women. People who looked like him or even his mom were few and far between. But hey, Victor didn't discriminate. Eventually, he found himself setting up tents and tables in his parents' front yard on weekends, slinging plants left and right. It very much became a second job. By this point, the the spare bedroom was two spare bedrooms that I'm using for the the, the plant room, right? The quote-unquote plant room mm-hmm. is now all of a sudden two of their spare bedrooms. I got plants in their like guest bathroom. I got plants in my mom's kitchen. They're everywhere, oh, right? Man. That's becoming like unsustainable. Even though they were still willing to like let me continue to use their house, it was just not sustainable because the the business by this point, it was a full business, was expanding. So now my brain is like, well, as soon as it gets cold, I'm gonna have to move this whole operation back into my parents' house. I was like, no, like it's time to, you know, put up or shut up. He had to choose between giving up the plant hustle or quitting his job. The very job that he shed tears for when he was hired. The job that helped him make his parents proud. And he'd be doing it to start his own business in a very competitive, very white market. That's after the break. In the beginning, Colorado's state flag was like so many others, a display of the state seal, which in Colorado's case includes an all-seeing eye, a Roman axe, a shield with mountains and mining tools, and the state motto in Latin. That changed a century ago, thanks in part to a Daughters of the American Revolution contingent in Denver who didn't know the state had a flag, and a radically different design for one from Andrew Carlisle Carson. Three stripes in blue and white, a circle in gold, and a red letter C. The legislature approved the design quickly, and the new flag first flew in a parade in May 1911. That flag was not quite the same as the one you'll find everywhere today. Precise colors and the position of the iconic sea had yet to be settled, but you would recognize it, as does the North American Vexillological Association, who will tell you Colorado's is a good example of a great flag, following their first principle of flag design, keep it simple. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with the support of Sheets and Giggles. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Let's get back to Kien Are We, CPR's new podcast about identity. Before the break, we met Victor Sosa, a budding entrepreneur, literally. He was at a crossroads about whether to expand his plant business. Here once again is podcast host May Ortega. 
Victor Sosa had been selling plants out of his parents' house for a couple of years. Meanwhile, he was working a very busy job that meant a lot to him. So he had to pick one. He decided to quit his job. He went all in with plants. And with that choice came another. Keep selling out of his parents' home or move into his own space. And I don't mean his apartment. I mean a whole brick-and-mortar location, paying rent and everything. The thought of putting down thousands of dollars on this huge financial gamble was nerve-wracking, to say the least. The rent and everything's yeah. <laughs> nauseous just thinking about it. After weeks of searching and careful calculation, Victor eventually settled on the most affordable spot he could find around Denver. It happened to be in a pretty Latino area, Federal Boulevard. For context, Federal is where I go when I want tacos that remind me of home, or when I'm craving some tamarindo or gummy bears drowned in chamoy. Federal is the spot. And that is where Victor chose to be. And what did he choose to name his new business? Well, he thought it best to honor his humble beginnings. The name of the store came because it was just the bedroom and I would just walk through their entire house with whoever was there for the appointment and I'd be like, the plant room's over here, the plant room's over here, and it's stuck. Oh, how are you doing? You doing okay still? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, if you have any questions, just let us know. Yes, yeah. so I have this cafe medallion. Welcome to the plant room. Um, so you're, you're collecting needs a humidifier. It needs to live pretty much close to a humidifier that is on like 24-7. Yeah, just super high humidity. I that. That's all like great information. Thank yeah. you so if much. it dies this time, at least I know why, you know? <laughs> now, full disclosure, I do shop at the plant room every so often. The very first time I went in, I was met with plants, obviously. Cacti, succulents up by our windows. Uh, so all the syngoniums, arrowhead plants commonly known as. I do have a ficus shriveriana, a stanleyana, a ring of fire. They were packed into every inch of the space. And it wasn't very big, around maybe 500 square feet. Long hanging vines crawled out of their pots and dangled over other shorter plants down the whole center of the shop. Shelves stuffed with smaller plants hugged the walls. And boy, was it humid. <laughs> It smelled so fresh and crisp in the shop, you could compare it to a forest in scent and appearance. But you don't usually find cumbia music in nature. I still remember that from my first visit because it made me feel seen. It was a pleasant surprise. And cumbia isn't on all the time, but when it is, it's great. Victor welcomed me in, not only on my first visit, but every visit after that. And if you have any questions about anything plant-related, Victor almost certainly has an answer. How many plants would you estimate are in here right now? Right right now, probably around like three to four hundred. Yeah, not, not that many. 
Not that many. Now, when it's fully, fully stocked, it can easily be a couple thousand plants in here. Wow. My God. As Victor was making his way through the world of houseplants, he learned a few things about the plant trade in Denver. And one of them was about the demographics of his competition. Now it's now it's not like nothing that I think about, right? But initially it was something that I was very aware of. Most other shops are like female owned, right? Um, there's definitely, as far as I know, maybe I can think of like one now, maybe two now that are owned by like other men. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, 99% of them are female owned, mm-hmm. white, right? So the space is predominantly like white. Um, mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I'm just, I'm this brown man over here, like selling plants. One reason I kept going back to the plant room is because it's owned by a brown man. I even told him when we met that that was a rarity. The initial contact would be you come into the store and it's just me standing behind the counter. And I'm like, hey, you know, like if you have any questions, let me know. And if you're not expecting it, I feel like people that are in the hobby that go to plant stores, like if they're not expecting it, they're like, who's this guy, you know? Yeah. Um, And very, very strange at first, right? Because I felt like people would look at me and maybe not even take me like a little bit seriously. Huh. Um, okay. You know, I'd be like, if you have any questions, let me know. And like, I know, you know, what I'm talking about, but I feel like sometimes people would be like, do you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you, guy? <laughs> guy? Guy selling plants? Brown guy selling plants? Yeah. Um, so I'm over here just trying to convince people that I know what I'm talking about. Back then, hmm. I was very, very much aware of it. When I was doing the outdoor sales, I was very much aware of it. I wouldn't say it's something I had to like overcome yeah. necessarily in like a bad way. But it has been something that I've had to like sort of like push through and just be like like, pushing through my narrative. When he opened his shop, Victor expected that his clientele would pretty much stay the same in terms of diversity, very white. But his location and his identity actually made way for another type of customer. Just like my mom was always into plants, pretty much everybody else's mom, (laughs) I would say like, you know, other Mexican moms, other Latin moms are also into plants. So I started to get a lot of, you know, like a lot of brown clientele in my shop because I was next to the Mexican restaurant. Nice. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm like a, like I joked, I'm selling to everybody's abuelita. <laughs> and it was it was super, super important to me to not be disingenuous to that, to basically our community as well, um, because I unofficially became like the, the plan plug for for the brown community here. Someone would come in from the Mexican restaurant next door and they're like, oh, I want to get some plants. But there's always I feel like from talking to to some of those people, there's always been like a hesitancy on their part Hmm. to go get plants at plant shops. If their English isn't good or if they're not Hmm. sure, like really what they want. Right. Because I still get a lot of this is my first plant type of, you know, mom and grandma. Sure. Yeah. Um, intimidating yeah and feel like they didn't really feel like super super comfortable going there so all of a sudden i have them coming into the shop i feel like i could see my mom and i was just thinking like (laughs) oh what would it be like for my mom to go into a plant shop and like maybe not feel like super comfortable or not feel like she could ask a bunch of questions and all of a sudden like now i'm here and i'm sort of providing that service and yeah just it made me feel like a part of this of this community that when i was younger i wasn't really connected to other than through my parents right so my mom and my dad those are the only brown people really in my life 
Yeah. And all of a sudden, I have all these other people, right? So I have everybody's abuelita. And <laughs> not, not, it makes me feel better, right? It makes me feel like not only is my business like a successful business, but it makes me feel like I'm in like a way giving back to like an underserved community, right? Because yeah. like I said, through talking to them, they, they want it, right? So they want plans. There's a demand. It's yeah. just a question of access. Access to them. And the access is there, but I feel like the comfort is maybe not always there. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. A couple of years into opening the plant room, things were going pretty well. Victor had loyal customers, a successful business, so much so that eventually he was able to move into a bigger space. He could have gone almost anywhere that he liked. So he closed down his original location and chose a spot just a few blocks away, still on Federal Boulevard. Your first one, you know, you chose your first location out of convenience price availability all this stuff yeah but the second one you chose for other reasons it was just important right so the first location on 23rd was next to a mexican restaurant right at taqueria so i not only had developed like a very sort of like a very devoted clientele Mm -hmm. you know predominantly white clientele Mm -hmm. so it was important to stay there because of that right it felt disingenuous on my part to all of a sudden pick up the plant room and now that I can be choosy or move it somewhere else. As we said in the beginning of this conversation, you didn't feel super, super in part of your culture until you got older now. So how has that changed how you see yourself? I mean, now I think that's that's really the main way. Now I feel like a Mexican-American man mm. versus just feeling like a part-time Mexican and a part-time, mm-hmm. you know, white wannabe guy. Like, I am the plant poppy, um, the foliage father to some, but the plant poppy to to another bunch of people. Yeah. And it has been the way in which I have felt like a Mexican-American man. So I'm super, super proud for for many reasons, but that is something that I am very, like, it does make me feel warm and fuzzy inside that. (laughs) That I am a place where, like, people can come and, like, feel totally, like, welcomed. If you don't speak English, doesn't matter. I got you. Um, like whatever we have to do, that's great. We'll we'll make it happen. The plant poppy, I love it, love it. Victor Sosa is the founder and owner of the Plant Room in Denver. May Ortega is co-creator and host of Kian Are We, CPR's new podcast that explores what it means to be Latino, Chicano, or however you identify. It just wrapped up its first season. Follow this and all the episodes wherever you get your podcast and at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today and to the team that keeps us in bloom. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Chandra Thomas Woodfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.